Hello and welcome. You're listening to Exocast, the podcast that takes you far beyond our solar system to explore distant extrasolar worlds. Coming up on this month's show, Hannah's going to be chatting with this month's special guest, Dr. Erin May. I'm going to be talking about a handful of mysterious stars that we astronomers can't explain yet. And Andrew's going to be covering the latest goings-on in the news. And we're going to have a, a brief chat about the Exo Cup, which finished just last month. So stay tuned to all that. But first, let's introduce the Exocast family. My name's Hugh Osborne, and I'm the Chess Fellow or Chaos Test Fellow at the University of Bern and at MIT, where I study transiting exoplanets. I'm Hannah Wakeford, and I'm a Geoconi Fellow at the Space Telescope Science Institute in Baltimore, where I characterise the atmospheres of exoplanets. And I'm Andrew Rushby, a postdoctoral astrobiologist at the University of California, Irvine, where I study the climate and habitability of terrestrial exoplanets, particularly those around small red stars. Cool. So we're into the final month and the final podcast of 2019. Um, yeah. How how is our how's winter going? It's snowing here in Bern, so I uh, I feel like it's a good Christmas episode uh, kind of vibe here. <laughs> Not going to get any snow in California, are you? It's about as cold as it's going to get here. I'm wearing, as you can, as uh, as the co-hosts can see at least on the webcam, I'm wearing a jumper because it's like 15 degrees Celsius outside today, which is about <laughs> as cold as I'm, I'm willing to tolerate in California. Should we add some quiet jingle bells in the background uh, for this episode or something? No, thank you. <laughs> so you're you're still a Giacconi fellow, Hannah, but you're in the UK now. Yeah, so I'm I'm back in the UK for a little bit. Um, before heading back to Space Telescope to to wrap things up, um, and then I start at Bristol right. in February. So, one more oh, one I more see. podcast um, as part of Space Telescope before I start my new position. I, I saw my office the other day, and I've ordered some furniture. So we'll see. That's the important stuff. We'll see how it all goes. <laughs> yeah, uh, get your furniture and recruit your students. Right. What about you, Hugh? You're, uh, you've also been traveling around a little bit. Are you settled for the, at least the past few weeks now? I mean, uh, this position's not very... Um, it, it doesn't really have a settled period, I think. So, yeah, I, I'm into my second month in Bern, but um, I was in MIT two weeks ago for a few meetings and also to scout out places to live because I'm going to be moving there at the start of January. So um, the next podcast, probably, I'll be uh, in different continents. But... Um, yeah, it's going well. Always chaos in the Exocast family. <laughs> well, we're all science nomads, wandering yeah. the wandering the plains, looking for more science to do. So, wherever it takes us. Right, shall we get on with the show? This month, we have the pleasure of chatting with Dr. Erin May. Welcome, Erin. Thank you. I'm excited, I think. <laughs> Erin received her PhD from the University of Michigan uh, in the summer of 2019, where she developed 3D GCM models for terrestrial-like planets, looking specifically at surface-atmosphere interactions. She's also the lead of an observational program, MOPSS. I don't know if that's MOPS. Yes, yeah. Nice little bit of MOPS on there on the Magellan Bayed Telescope in Chile. And Erin is now a postdoc at JHU's Applied Physics Lab, working on exoplanet phase curves with Spitzer. So it's really good to have you with that huge range of expertise there. Thank you for inviting me. 
I wanted to actually start on something a little bit outside of what Exocast uh, talks about. You you work on all of these different things in exoplanets, but you actually started your undergraduate research working on stellar clusters in other galaxies. Could you describe a little bit about what what that process is, what you worked on, and, and how you came to exoplanet research from that? Yeah, so I did a lot of different things in undergrad. I actually didn't really know that astronomy was a thing you could do until I got halfway through undergrad. Uh, I just stumbled across an astronomy class and thought it sounded cool. (laughs) Um, So before that, I actually worked at Michigan State has a uh, the largest national superconducting cyclotron in the country. So they make a lot of cool isotopes there. Um, And I was trying to think of how to explain the project I worked on there in a way that like tied into exoplanets. And the way I came up with is we like to look at kind of like the history of the discovery of exoplanets and I know what was the first planet discovered with this method uh, and how we're starting to push the boundaries and find different planets with different methods and smaller planets and bigger planets and longer orbits. And that's kind of what I worked on there was documenting the first discovery of isotopes. Right. And it sounds really boring <laughs> uh, because I'm personally not super interested in isotopes, uh, but it would be the same as if we sat down and tried to look at the history of the discovery of exoplanets and uh, how the field has grown and developed. Uh, that's where I decided I didn't like physics, research, physics research. Um, right. And I took that astronomy class. Uh, so I ended up in a project where we were looking at at the feasibility of using um, Michigan State's SOAR telescope to detect black holes in uh, the uh, center center stellar clusters of dwarf galaxies. So to do that, you have to have really high spectral resolution so you can detect all the stars moving around in the clusters. Uh, And my advisor wasn't sure that the telescope would be able to do that, so he gave me this project and said, tell me if it'll work. Mm. Uh, and it didn't really work. And that's where I discovered that I didn't want to work on things that had really small signals. <laughs> I wanted large signal to noise. Uh, and then lo and behold, I ended up in exoplanets where I actually enjoy what I'm working on, but, uh, the signal to noise might be a little bit even smaller than, than what I was working on before. <laughs> we don't get a huge amount of signals in the atmospheric work. Um, could you... You kind of took that on then. So the the project leading into exoplanets really came from this using this telescope. Is that how you started developing your own observational program as a graduate student? Yeah. So when I went to graduate school, I thought I wanted to be a theorist because I had this horrible time working with data that was uh, not great in undergrad, uh, dealing with all the issues of low signal to noise. Um, but I was still kind of vaguely interested in observations. Uh, so my advisor, Emily Rauscher, had been hired on uh, the same time that I started at Michigan. And the way it works there is faculty members propose project ideas for first-year students coming in, and we get a list of, of projects. And I knew I was kind of vaguely interested in exoplanets, uh, but I had to pick something. And luckily, she came on and proposed this project uh, to look at atmospheres of planets around binary stars, so like Tatooine in Star Wars, only right. not terrestrial planets, ones that we can actually live on. So I started working on that project because it was theory, and I was getting away from this this small signal-to-noise regime. (laughs) Uh, And I got to work on exoplanets, which I thought were really cool, and I hadn't gotten any exposure to them in undergrad because we didn't have anybody there really working on that. 
uh, and along the way, there was a uh, someone who had used to be a graduate student from Michigan and then was now a postdoc at uh, Penn State at the time. His name is Ming Zhao, who decided he wanted to try using the Magellan Body Telescope to do transmission spectroscopy. Uh, and he was around for a couple months after we started, and then he left the field. So um, I kind of took it over because I thought it was a really cool project. I still loved telescopes, and I got to travel to Chile to do it quite a bit. Uh, and it kind of fell on me, where if I wanted to keep it going, I had to run it and figure it all out by myself. What was that like as a graduate student trying to figure everything else out at the same time, having to run this observational program? Yeah, And you were successful four years, four seasons in a row getting observational time on that. Um, that's a yeah. pretty impressive program. And from what I understand, yeah. you also had students that that worked for you on that program. Could you explain a little bit about what that process is and how, how you that kind of molded into what you were doing for your PhD? Yeah, so um, Michigan had guaranteed, and I keep talking about different Michigan universities. <laughs> uh, so University of Michigan, where I got my PhD, has this guaranteed time on the Magellan Body Telescope. We get 10% of the time on that telescope, and that's twin telescope, Clay. Uh, they're identical telescopes sitting on a mountaintop together, which is a really nice sight to see. Uh and so it's an internal proposal process. So it's a little bit different than, uh, you know, when you're proposing to Hubble or James Webb, you know, the, the large space ones where everyone's submitting to the same place. Uh, it's an internal process. And then a committee within the, the university's department gets together and decides who gets the time. Uh, and everyone in the department was really excited about this project because it was something new. Nobody had uh, in the department had really tried to do this before. Uh, so they were really willing to give me all of the time I wanted and then some, nice. uh, even though, you know, the first several semesters we got all of, we were awarded all of this time, but as observing goes, it was cloudy or the instrument broke oh, no. or everything. Uh, that so does for the happen. First, <laughs> for the first two years, I only had a 20% success rate in actually getting the data, uh, so it was a little discouraging, but as I started getting data and building up all of the pipeline to reduce it, I got really excited about all of the results we were going to be able to get. Uh, and I kind of made some friends with people at other institutions working on similar projects to get some tips on how to best set up our uh, observing methods. Right. And then I ended up getting to the point where I was getting data every time I, I traveled down there. So I got to the point I had too much data to do anything with myself it's and always a nice point to get to but it, it's also yeah. a little bit daunting when that happens yeah so that's how I ended up with students um University of Michigan obviously is huge and has lots of undergrads who are really excited about research and think that if they don't publish a paper they're just never going to be successful which isn't isn't true as an undergrad no, we'd like to dispel that notion here on Exocast. yes yes it's not yeah. something that's necessary uh, but they all think it is, and that meant I could take them on and have them reduce all of my data. So it was a great learning experience to uh, take on these. Mostly they were freshmen, uh, so first years of undergrad, first year out of high school. And they really had no research experience, so you kind of get to mold them into a little mini researcher and shape their experience in the fields. So it's been a lot of fun. Uh, and you're still running that program now? I am. So uh, 
I can't officially submit the uh, telescope proposals anymore because I'm not at Michigan. Right. Uh, but there's a graduate student there that is still working with me on it, and he submits them on my behalf. And I have a dozen planets I need to go through <laughs> the data for at some point. Wow. And I'm sure that number grows and grows every single time you have to submit something new. Yes. yes. <laughs> so I wanted to kind of uh, change tax from that observing experience and we'll talk a little bit uh, about the work that you're doing now uh, later but I, I wanted to kind of go back to this theoretical work that got you excited and got you started uh, in exoplanets you worked on a global circulation model um, looking specifically at small planets what kind of we've talked a bit about global circulation models here on exocast but what kind of uh, model is this could you explain a little bit about what it is that it contained and and how you use that yeah, so the model I use was developed um, from by my PhD advisor during her PhD uh, from an Earth-based code that was written in the 80s right? Uh, or maybe the 70s. It was a really long time ago. Uh, <laughs> That's when all the code was written and we've yeah. just been recycling been and using updating that. it since then. All, yeah. <laughs> all code ever was written in the 70s. <laughs> <laughs> it's compiled in you know, Fortran 77, uh, right. all that fun stuff. Uh, but she she uh, modified it to work for hot Jupiters. Uh, so took away everything that made it look like an Earth-like model and just kept the core of it that really ran the radiative transfer. Uh, and so my first project, I I modified it to, to work for binary star systems. You could have a changing amount of uh, stellar flux hitting the planets, which is really, really interesting. Uh, and then I've always been interested in smaller planets. I mean, hot Jupiters are cool, but they're a little been there, done that, in my opinion. Oh, <laughs> um, oh no. <laughs> General theme of exocast coming through here. <laughs> oh dear. We're not going to have a good discussion about the work that you're currently working on then. I'll make sure certain no, people don't hear this. No, as studying <laughs> them with GCMs, they're a little been there, done that. But in terms of actually observing them, I, I think there's still a lot to learn <laughs> Nice well save. saved. <laughs> <laughs> so, so in my interest in smaller planets, uh, the the second main project I picked up for my thesis was taking this uh, general circulation model that uh, really takes in all these planetary properties and stellar properties and models the winds and temperature structure on the planet. I edited that again to now work for Earth-like planets. And when you say Earth-like. Uh, do you mean without any hydrogen helium in the atmosphere? Yeah, the atmosphere composition can be whatever you want. Uh, okay. And the it's a it's a uniform surface. So when I say Earth like, I guess I just mean a terrestrial planet with a rocky surface. Right. Uh, and the reason that's important is because the surface actually really plays into how the atmosphere uh, transports heat and evolves over time. So if you don't have that aspect in the model you're really losing the ability to capture what's really going on on these terrestrial planets and it's a really important part of what we uh, might expect to see when we observe the planets as well so really kind of focusing on that lower boundary condition and how that changes the turbulence in the atmosphere or, or a lot of other things as well in terms of like reflective surfaces and uh, albedos both so it uh the, the rotation rate and the drag from the surface causes uh, these waves in the atmosphere, baroclinic instabilities. 
that you can see in pictures of the earth with the clouds kind of swirling around at the mid latitudes. And those are really efficient at transporting heat away from the equator. So mm-hmm. we all know it's a lot warmer if you go to the equator. Uh, if we didn't have the surface, that heat would kind of get trapped there a little bit more. It wouldn't move away. And it would get even colder as you move further north or south. So right. luckily we have a surface and it's not so cold where we're all living. For many reasons, right? I mean, yeah, there's I like many to walk around as well. Have a surface, but <laughs> uh, that's definitely one of them. Uh, but then, yeah, it also it, it reflects light, and so you you result in there being more more heating in the lower layers of the atmosphere because of the reflection off of the surface instead of it just continuing to absorb down through an atmosphere. And and did this work on these these smaller planets? And your interest in that really kind of help in any way with the observational work that you were doing because they're so very different looking at giant planets in observations compared to studying these smaller worlds in gcms how do you link those two things together that's a great question and one that i really struggled with when i was framing my dissertation uh because everyone likes your projects to kind of be linked together in some way uh so what what i came up with is that both of the methods were kind of trying to probe the smallest possible planets we could smallest possible gas gaseous planets we could with each method. So from the modeling side, I was looking at how the surface started affecting an atmosphere. At what point, how much atmosphere could you put there and still be able to tell observationally that there was a surface? So we're kind of looking at that transition from where a planet starts being less likely to be gaseous, more likely to be terrestrial, uh, and what our GCM tells us the observational implications of that are. And then observationally, we were looking at uh, continuing to push the limits of what this telescope could do. So in pushing to uh, smaller mass planets, uh, slightly larger radii, so they're inflated, and really pushing down to smaller and smaller sizes each observing campaign. So that was kind of how I linked them together. They were both very different planets, and I could not hope to observe the planets I was modeling (laughs) anytime soon with that telescope, but... They're both small in their own way. So now you've kind of uh, moved on to do a little bit of both by combining the the things that you've learned about these different planets and how they change um, with their rotation and size. And now you're working on Spitzer data. Spitzer, uh, as some of our Exocast followers might know, is coming to the end of its its funding lifetime. Unfortunately, it is on its last run. But I got in just in time. <laughs> <laughs> How is it starting learning to use these space-based telescopes compared to the ground-based telescopes? They definitely all have their benefits and not-so-great aspects about them. Uh, I think what I've enjoyed the most about Spitzer uh, is... I, I personally think systematics are fun, Um i'll agree with you there (laughs) you do agree or you don't agree i do agree i mean i've got well i don't know how many things that i'm working on where it's just based on the systematics and looking at them you have to like them otherwise yeah it's it's kind of cool to you know you get this data and you're like well that looks like crap Um, but (laughs) you can explain why it looks like crap exactly And to me that's that's pretty cool is to be able to create these models that explain why it looks like crap so (laughs) uh I've actually enjoyed that aspect of Spitzer is, uh, you know, we're still learning about why Spitzer data sometimes isn't great. And I can, uh, even though Spitzer's coming to the end of its life, try and 
improve on how we're dealing with the systematics on Spitzer. And we can still keep working on all the data that we have and trying to make what we know about these planets even more accurate. Now, I'm sure we'll come up a bit later, but this led to a couple of vendettas against planets in the ExoCup. It did, yes. <laughs> yes. Can you tell us a little bit about what you're working on right now and, and why that opinion might have come about? Oh, yeah. So uh, I don't tend to have favorite planets very often, but I regularly have ones I don't like. Uh, and it depends on which planet I'm currently working on at the time. So uh, I think most I'm observers can say that. Yes. Uh, so I'm currently uh, working on uh, some systematics that we thought we understood in a WASP-43B data set. Uh, and it turns out we don't really understand them as well as we thought we did. Mm. Uh, so that's been my life since July is fighting <laughs> with WASP-43B. So I very much did not want that to move on to the next round of the ExoCup <laughs> to the dismay of Hannah and many others. But I, I won in the end. So. <laughs> we'll chat a little bit more about the ExoCup later. Erin, as with all you know, good guests, you're also passionate about uh, outreach and engagement activities. You know, beyond mm -hmm. beyond Twitter and um, looking up uh, your website, I noticed that you also you held a science communication fellowship at the Museum of Natural History at the University of Michigan. Yes, so, could you tell yeah. us a little bit about what you got up to while you were while you were there at the museum? Sounds really fun. Yeah, so it was this really cool program that the university's uh, uh, Museum of Natural History runs where they uh, bring in PhD candidates from around different uh, departments around the university, and they help you develop and teach you how to interact with uh, students of various ages. So the, when I was in the program, we were looking at uh, early elementary school, so like kindergarten through third, fourth grade. So they really haven't learned much about science. So we talked a lot about, you know, what what scientific words do these children know and how can you communicate your research to them using the words that they actually know so that they understand what you're talking about and through all this we developed these hands-on activities to interact with the the kids that came to the museum and we'd, we'd set up booths throughout the museum and teach them about our research at a level that they understood and get them really excited about science and it was really cool to see people from different fields working on this. I learned a lot about other people's fields. Uh, so even adults found you know, the activities that we, we uh, presented to them through it exciting. And it was really a, a really cool program that I highly recommend to anybody who gets a chance to do something like that. No, it sounds great. And such a useful, um, a useful uh, skill to be able to pick up that, that communication across ages and across, mm -hmm. you know, different, different um, levels of science background and knowledge. It's, it's such a fundamentally important thing for us as science communicators to be able to very quickly change our, our you know, our level or, or the words that we're using to make sure that the people we're speaking with are as engaged as we would like them to be in the science. Mm -hmm. That's really cool. Yeah, I did. I did have coloring pages for them, for them to color their own exoplanets what they thought they might look like and they got very creative with those nice okay well erin thank you so much for coming on and chatting a little bit about your science we will of course hear from you later when uh, we chat a bit about the exo cup and then when you are going to an adopt a planet for us so thank you yes. for for chatting about the science yeah thanks for having me
Now Hugh is going to talk to us about some serendipitous discoveries that may or may not be exoplanet related because we don't understand what they are in any way whatsoever. So Hugh, what what are you talking about? Yeah, so I thought I'd talk a little bit about some, uh, well, firstly some stars because what we <laughs> study in exoplanets, to, well, in exoplanetary science to try and find exoplanets is stars. But sometimes we find other things when we're looking for planets and some, normally we understand what those things are, but in some cases we still don't. So I thought I'd start with um, with just a little explainer about how uh, those pretty images that we tend to see in astronomy, you know, the the images that are with press releases of, of, of planets and the images we have of, of kind of other stars, we don't ever see anything like that, right? So we're only only ever looking in, in kind of, in uh, almost all the fields of, of exoplanetary science that we study anyway, we're only ever looking at blobs of pixels of a star on a detector. And from that, we can interpret what is around it right um so uh, this isn't true for the direct imaging planets that's you know six planets there where we can actually image the, the some pixels from the, the planet itself but usually what we're doing is we're looking at at stars and because we're only looking at kind of blobs of pixels we can um we can actually look at tens of thousands at one time right so we can we can fill a ccd with or our, our telescope field of view with tens of thousands of stars and we can look at all of you know, tens of thousands of stars at one time. And the reason we can study these stars, of course, is because we're looking at this kind of field um, in time. So we're staring at this patch of, of sky uh, for a month, for four years in the case of Kepler. And over that time, we see how the brightness from each of those stars changes. And of course, um, sometimes in those uh, those light curves, as we call them, so the, the, the change in, in brightness over time, we find planets because planets transit in front of their star blocking some of the light and the bigger the planet so the bigger the area of the star that's covered the deeper that dip um, but we can also study other things so we can study stellar variability for example there are um, spots and faculae on the star and you can go back to when we had brett morris on last month to hear a little bit more about that um, and these tend to also vary the brightness over time that each of these stars have but they tend to vary um, normally only a couple of percent uh, in, in brightness and also on a long time scale so longer than the time scale that an exoplanet transit happens so that means usually we can separate out these two effects and um, and study both the star and the planet uh, and another thing we often see with uh, with these surveys when we're looking at tens of thousands of stars is we'll see eclipsing binaries so not just planets passing in front of their stars but also um, other stars because uh many many of the stars in the sky aren't actually single stars like our sun they are in binary or multiple systems with multiple stars going around um, and occasionally those two stars will cross in front of each other blocking some of the light from the system and we tend to get a deeper dip there because stars are bigger than planets and they tend these dips tend to be kind of v-shaped as well so um so not the kind of u-shaped transits that we see from planets um so I thought I'd talk about a few stars here which don't quite fit in any of those categories of things we, we study all the time. Um, and the first one I was going to talk about is Kick 2856960. As always, terribly named. <laughs> um, astronomers are terrible at naming things, but this uh, it's Kick, which stands for Kepler in Input Catalog. So this means that it was observed uh, by Kepler for four years. So we have a lot of data for this star. And one thing you notice when you look at the data is that there is an eclipsing binary there. So there's a, um, 
a really short period, about a 0.4 day eclipsing binary. So every 0.4 days, we see this V-shaped dip. Um, and this continues through the entire uh, four-year campaign, except every 200 days, something else happens and something extremely bizarre. We see a very complicated kind of sawtooth dip that's far deeper than the eclipsing binary that we, we see for the rest of the time. Um, something like uh, six or seven times deeper, there's these 10 or 12 very sharp, um, very bizarre looking dips, which at first seem completely at odds with, with what, what it looks like initially. Um, but when you think about it, and, and when you see that this is re uh, repeating every 200 days, you realize, okay, there must be an orbit here. There must be something going around a background star which is causing these strange dips and it kind of makes sense then to try and fit a triple system so to try and have two stars the two stars that are eclipsing that we see the rest of the time passing in front of a background star and so um, what it's thought that this system is is a triple system where um, a, a small uh, short period binary is passing in front of a large uh, background kind of subgiant star but the weird thing is I mean, we're pretty good at modeling binaries. We we have code that can do this very well. And, and normally, when you fit a binary, you get a perfect fit. But in this case, if you fit three stars to the system, you get a terrible fit. You can't fit any of the dips. You only kind of smear out the, the kind of middle section. Some of the dips don't get fitted at all. Um, it looks awful. And you can do something weird to, to this uh, to make this work, though. Uh, what what um, Marsh et al. did in three years ago is they turned off Kepler's laws. Now, you can't turn off Kepler's laws, right? This is a law of physics. You can't just um, de deactivate it. But when you do that, when you make the, the speed of the stars basically no longer proportional to the mass of the stars, then you get a perfect fit for, this, for these eclipses. Um, all, of the, all of these deep kind of 10% dips are perfectly fitted. Um, and your, you know, your residuals look flat. So what the hell can be going on here, right? I mean, this you can't have um, Kepler's laws turned off for the system. No. So what actually we think is is going on here is that there's a fourth star in orbit there that's adding extra velocity to one of the two kind of star systems. So either the binary or the background star is being moved at a faster velocity than you would expect. Um, but in order to make it work, you need you need the period of that extra component, that extra orbit, to be perfectly um, situated so that it brings the stars back into alignment every single time there's an eclipse. And apparently you need it to be 0.1% away from an integer multiple of the, the, the binary period, which is, it seems impossible that you would be able to, to, to have a 0.1% percent match in order to explain this system but apparently that's that's the only way to make it work and also the only way to make it work is to have that that star we don't see to be effectively unphysical so it has far too large a mass given its radius and given what we see so maybe it's a neutron star or a white dwarf or a brown black hole or something um, for the moment we actually don't know what is there and nobody has yet explained um, quite what is going on in this system so if in doubt add, add more stars Add more stars <laughs> and add weird stars. With later Gaia data releases where they actually consider binaries because Gaia DRT doesn't consider binaries, would later releases of the Gaia data help there? Or if it's something yeah, small I, like a neutron star or white dwarf, maybe not? Gaia should help definitely because um, 
you should be able to get a better handle on the orbit of yeah. any any of the visible stars in the system. The problem is it's a really faint star because Kepler right. observed it and um, so it's not really been followed up that much. But Well, I'm actually going to talk about, you might have seen it in the news, that there was a, a, a an analysis of the um, of the Gaia data to, to tease out some um, companions to existing planet hosts. Was this system included in that? Uh, I, so, I, didn't... I mean, this wouldn't be a planet host, so I guess not. Oh, of course. Sure. But, okay. Um, right, so on to star number two I was going to talk about. I'm surprised we haven't talked about this in any kind of guest slot, but I want to talk about J1407, which is uh, a star that was observed from the ground, um, by WASP, for example, and um, and in the light curves in the kind of photometric data that came out of this ground-based telescope, um, there's this enormous eclipse. So you know, normal planet or binary eclipse lasts less less than a day, right, and cover up a few percent or less than a percent of of the, the star. Um, in this case, it the eclipse lasts something like eighty days and covers up almost one hundred percent of the stellar flux. So there's an enormous structure basically passing in front of this star um, and covering almost entire, almost all the flux from it. And also during individual nights, so during just a, a period of hours that this star was viewed during the eclipse, um, you see these variations that are kind of 50% of the starlight being um, being eclipsed in a couple of hours. So something is moving across the star, something with like very fine structure and it's moving relatively quickly as well to be able to cover up so much of that. So, so the model that kind of has been used for this is a a planet with a or a brown dwarf with a disk around it with holes, gaps in that disk um, that are basically causing these these brightness variations on on a small scale. And the the large scale kind of asymmetric two month long dip that we see is due to this large. Um, I think it's. 0.5 AU across this disk around a young super Jupiter, which is moving in front of the star, and this actually fits the data surprisingly well. You can, um, when when you when you build a model with rings that are symmetrical, you can fit almost all of those dips. Yeah, it's very similar to how we did uh, stellar occultation studies of solar system rings for like Uranus and Neptune. Yeah, because those have extremely sharp edges, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and the reason, one of the reasons we think that uh, this might actually be a possibility is because it's in a young star region. So we know that there's there should be young uh, dust around it, although the star itself has has lost all of its dust. So uh, stars form with this protoplanetary disk where planets form in, and usually they have this big bump in the infrared where you would see flux. Um, but we don't see any of that for this star, which suggests that most of the dust has been um, it's formed into planets or been blown away. Um, but if you're a planet around this star, then you would have some residual dust. You would hold on to that dust a lot longer than you would if you were a star. Um, but there's problems with this model. And, and, and one of the big problems is that we know something about the speed of the disk, just given the size of the star and how, how fast we see things moving in front of the star. And so that tells us something about where it is in the, in the system, because if it's on a circular orbit, it should have some velocity. Um, but it turns out it should only be about one or two AU away from the star. Um, but you said the disk was one AU. Yeah, so the disk is 0.5 AU across, right? So this is a problem because mm. um, because it shouldn't be stable given it's how close it is to its star. So And if it's only two AU away from its star, it should have an orbit of three or four years. Um, but we have 15 years of data showing that this has not repeated. So um, if it is on an orbit around that star, then it needs this weirdly eccentric orbit 
which again doesn't help with stability because as soon as you get eccentric things you have to move them closer to their star at perihelion and so um quite how this can this disc could survive is is uh, not really known but actually there was a, a paper up today um showing that uh, alma finds a source about um 400 au away from the star uh, and it's been about what 15 years now since this eclipse so um, actually that's perfectly the amount of time you would expect if there was a just a disk moving across the star and it wasn't connected to the system at all it should be about this distance about 400 million seconds away from that star now and it seems like there's a source in alma that could be this disk just floating through space Huh. So that's one of the ways to solve a... So it's a brown dwarf with a disc that happened to pass in front of another star? Well, yeah. this is It's so stupidly unlikely that, that two stars would cross such that they would like transit each other. Especially because... at the exact point that we're looking at it. Yeah, that's odd. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> it should. It's one in a million that these two things would cross, but it's such a, a weird system that you actually have to start inspecting these one in a million chances to try and figure out what's going on so the next star i wanted to talk about which we don't understand is kick 8462852 but i won't last too long in it because we actually spent an entire episode talking about this a while back because this is Boyajan's or tabby's star um, so this was another star observed by kepler which has again strange dips going on um, but unlike the, the the triple system we were talking about um these dips aren't periodic. There's there's no connection here between what we expect to see in terms of eclipses and binaries and, and transits and what we see in the light curve because the dips on Tabby Star are just crazy, right? I mean, they have, they're asymmetric. They have kind of these triple like V-shaped dips that kind of happen over the course of a few days. And then um, it goes back to, the star goes back to being normal again. Um, and once again, like for J1407, we don't see any dust in the infrared. So we know that this isn't a young star, but we also know that, that whatever is eclipsing here can't be um, due to the, there being large quantities of hot dust in the system. And, and these eclipses kind of look like some of these young stars which have dust that's kicked up in front of the star. But given that there's no disk in the system, we know that that can't be the case. Um, and something we covered a while back when we talked about the star there was this hypothesis that uh was not at all credited that was that it was a megastructure uh, built by aliens and obviously that that went um pretty global in the news and if you've heard of the alien megastructure star then this is that one um but as we discussed last time um you can't actually fit the the data with that hypothesis, because if there is a megastructure, it should be on a close-in orbit, trying to, um, you know, like Dyson sphere, then it should also be warm and producing infrared light. And we don't see any infrared light, so we can effectively rule this out. And another thing is that we've had dips of this star since then, and we'd be able to observe them in different colors. So um, just like for the sunset, for example, um, the particles in the atmosphere refract the light of the sunset um, and this refraction this makes it red right because there's more blue light that is refracted away and the same is true for eclipses of other stars if there's dust and if there's small particles between you and the star then some of the light gets scattered away and some of the light comes through and we see this for um, these 
subsequent eclipses, we see that the light is actually deeper in the blue than the, than the red, and this implies that there's small particles effectively causing this. So again, not anything that's kind of structured on large scales built by aliens. <laughs> that, was, that was kind of always going to be the case. Um, so what we think it is, is maybe a swarm of comets, or there's been an asteroid collision that's kicked up dust, and this asteroid collision is then... Uh, the, but the dust isn't kind of warm enough or uh, in enough quantity to cause an infrared excess. Uh, but we're certainly sure it's not aliens. Um, so I'm a little bit behind in terms of this literature, Hugh, but wasn't there also a secular brightening of the star over, you know, tens of, of years based yes. on some previous observations? So there was a dimming that was... A dimming. So in Kepler, right. there was a dimming that was observed um, of, of about 1% during the four years. So that that was pretty well constrained and that was we were pretty sure that happened uh, actually since then it seems like um after the recent dimming event it brightened up by about a percent so it looks like maybe um maybe it go comes and goes and these 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 uh dips we see are kind of um after those dips pass we get sort of a clear view of the star again um but then yeah there is this literature about really long-term dimming of the star in the last hundred years but i don't think there's any um i think that the, the jury's still out on whether that's true or not because these go back to photographic plates and uh and we're not entirely sure how well we can understand the systematics of those so the last star i wanted to talk about was hd 139139 or the random transitor and so i don't know if you guys have heard of this one no nothing so it was it was observed by k2 about a year ago now and when you look at the light curve what you see is the kind of comb like dips you get for a transit transiting planet right so so multiple um dips about 200 to 300 parts per million so really really small dips here um way way less than a percent and uh, multiple of these dips occurring they, at first look they look kind of regular um through the campaign so um, th through the 80 days we have data for and actually if you look at the individual dips they're kind of u-shaped so they look um, more or less like transiting planets you know um, some of them have um, slightly more v-shaped dips some of them are slightly more u-shaped which is weird normally they should be the same shape um, but the data is a little bit noisy as well so we can't really say anything about that but when you try and fit a period so this is something we do you know you you, you test multiple uh, trans transiting planet periods and the period that is correct will line up with every single transit and will tell you give you this great booming signal in a periodogram saying this is the period of the planet so when you do that for ht139139 you get a flat line there is no periodicity in any of these 26 dips at all um, even though they all look like planets hmm. so um, it's the weirdest system and actually if you look at the timings and the, well, the difference the um, time delay between each of the dips um, and you fit it against a Poisson distribution so basically random draw of of uh, of numbers out of a hat you see that actually that the timing of the transits matches better a randomly selected type transit time than it does any sort of periodic or or, or understandable um, thing so um, what the hell is going on in this system right I mean 
what could it be? And and actually, one thing I should say is that when you look at the raw data, these are real, right? And then there's no hint of systematics or something else going on. So the star itself is dimming, and it's not it doing so in a completely aperiodic way. Um, and the and the dips themselves are very short, sharp kind of uh, planet-like dips. So one of the first things and uh, Rappaport's Saul Rappaport's paper goes through a, a long list of hypotheses as to what could be causing these dips. And the first of those was kind of what if there's multiple planets, right? What if there's uh, 13 or, or more planets and each one of those planets is responsible for one or two hmm. of the dips um, but actually you can't really make it work because all of the dips are quite short duration and um, and what tends to happen is is if it's a short duration dip either it's eccentric and you're seeing it at perihelion so when it comes passes closest to the star or it's on a short orbit um, but if it's on a short orbit then you can't explain it because you should see it again right so um, so either there's a, a, a 15 eccentric planets all passing the star at perihelion, which mm. seems impossible. You yeah. know, that, that's a very unstable system, right? You can't have multiple eccentric planets. They'd all be crossing each other. They'd be throwing each other out. Um, so that's extremely unlikely that, that these could be planets. Um, another option is maybe it's a disintegrating planet. Sometimes a Kepler saw one or two planets that seem to come and go so their transits would be turned off and turned on again basically depending on whether the planet was was being evaporated and, and throwing out dust at that time and then when there was no activity you'd see almost no transit um, but when you look at these kind of systems you always see even if there's not always a planet you see periodicity because um, when the planet is turned on it always turns on at the same time it's passing between you and the star so you shouldn't see um no periodicity at all so you can effectively eliminate that um another thing it could be is maybe asteroids which come and go as well a bit like disintegrating planets um by by um emitting dust and evaporating at certain times and then other times being going through quiescent periods um but actually these normally leave kind of these comet-like tails and you see these very complex v-shaped dips um, and for this system, we see very U-shaped, very kind of transit-like eclipses. So um, whatever is causing it can't be these asteroids. And also another thing is that all of these dips seem about the same depth. So they all have depths between 200 and 400 parts per million. Um, whereas if there's multiple asteroids causing multiple dips, you would not expect them to give you the exact same depth, right? So you, they should be, some of them should be bigger than others, some of them should emit more dust than others. So um, that can't really be the case. Hmm. Um, wow, what a bizarre system. Yeah, so another thing it could be is maybe in a binary system. Maybe the star is actually in a binary star and we're seeing only when a planet is um, kind of traversing one of those binaries. Um, because in, in circumbinary systems, depending on where the two inner stars are, you can either have a transit or you cannot have a transit. So there's some systems where you only get four or five transits because those are only the times when it's crossing uh, one of them. Um, but in this case, you would expect uh, some sort of periodicity even so. And again, if you need multiple planets to explain it, they quickly become unstable. And also we, we have signs now that the, the star in the system isn't a binary there's rvs that suggest that it's it's a relatively stable star so um, we can effectively rule that one out as well um or it could be maybe something to do with stellar variability right we uh 
we can't we tend to see star spots and, and stellar variability is very slow um migrating spots which which don't move the flux from the star very quickly but maybe there's some strange thing happening with this star which causes these very abrupt very um deep star spots that appear and then disappear um within a couple of hours right that's that's something we've never seen on any any other stars but it's not not precisely ruled out i guess um or and my kind of preferred explanation is that actually we're seeing um, a quadruple star system. So we talked a bit earlier about uh, triple star systems where you have uh, one, two stars moving around another star. But if you had two stars both orbiting each other and not transiting, and another two stars in the background also orbiting each other and not transiting, while those two um, foreground stars pass in front of the background stars, you would see eclipses and they would be not periodic because the times that they traverse each other uh, depend on where they are in their orbit. And it's, you know, as soon as you put um, four objects together, you kind of get this chaotic system. And so you can mimic chaos. Um, there's also a background star in the system that could be responsible for for the dips. So that, the problem is it's quite a faint star. And um, again, it's oh, not okay. been followed up very, uh, very, very much. And this was only discovered about a year ago. So, I mean, it's amazing how you go through each of these these hypotheses and you can rule out the easy ones right and you end up thinking about the craziest scenarios you know i mean i'm sure it hasn't been suggested yet but i'm sure someone will suggest aliens for this as well right oh, yeah um, sure always generally if there's something we don't we can't immediately explain right it's alien of the gaps right i mean they talk about god of the gaps in evolution theory and, and in, in astronomy we have alien of the gaps where everything we don't explain is, is apparently filled with aliens um Nothing that a good uh, high-resolution, high-spatial-resolution image can't solve. I mean, that'd be great for everything, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I really just love these mysteries where we, mm. we find something and we we go through all of these these things and, we, we you know, you end up doing this kind of Arthur Conan Doyle thing where you have to, elim where he says, once you eliminate the impossible, whatever remains, no matter how improbable, must be the truth, right? And that's, that's, that's something that as astronomers, when we find something like as bizarre as these stars we found, um, we end up having to having to do this and and finding these improbable, um, crazy crazy systems. Um, but for the moment, we just can't really explain them. Um, it just makes me always makes me just want more data. Every time you mention something kind of weird, I'm just like, well, just just do this, just do this. And I'm like, well, that's not how the world works. You can't just do that. So there's <laughs> there's a lot. Putting a proposal for this. Just proposal like, for that. <laughs> point a telescope at it see what happens yeah. but it takes time for that and sometimes like you said these are very faint ones you're talking about um you know one of the reasons why the Boyajian and star has been followed up so much is because it's not as faint as the others we've got the ability to make those kinds of measurements so it really does come down to a technological feat at that point um so hopefully some of these weird and wacky things that you've mentioned stay in people's minds and as our technology and instruments get better we go back and look and see what we can learn yeah, I'm sure we'll we'll talk about them again on Exo, Exocast at some point if yeah. there are new and exciting discoveries about any of these these systems. Yeah. So one, one the the random transitor there, the last one. Actually, if you looked at it with TESS, or maybe not TESS, but if you looked at it with pre-Kepler photometry, you would have seen a flat line. You wouldn't have had the the um, the sensitivity to see these strange uh, a a periodic eclipses because you wouldn't have had you know enough. Um, photons precision so you, so actually i i wonder if the the more the bigger the telescopes we get 
the more we'll be be able to explain these systems we currently don't understand, but also the deeper we'll go into the stars and planets and we'll find new things that we don't understand at all as well uh, in, in unexpected places. And I think that's that I, I really like that kind of aspect that there's going to be things we don't understand and we just have to find them, right? It's exciting. Those are some fascinating stars. Thank you for that. Okay. And without further ado, we'll go on to Andrew at the news desk. What's happened this month? Yeah, thanks, Hugh. Um, as usual, we'll we'll kick things off over here on the news desk with uh, with updates from the realm of detection. And the big news is that writing this uh, writing in Nature this month, uh, a team led by Boris Gansicki described the detection of a dust disk around the white dwarf star WD J zero nine one four plus nineteen fourteen. Uh, now this this disk uh, this disk appears to be accreting onto the star at a pretty high rate, uh, something like three thousand metric tons per second, um, and it's unusual in that it um, in that major constituents of the disk are water and hydrogen sulfide. So now the the authors posit that the source of this material is an evaporating giant planet, which is kind of what we were just talking about in Hughes' section, um, an evaporating giant planet at around 15 solar radii. And this is significant because it would make this the first detection of a planet around a single white dwarf, i.e. one that's not in a red dwarf or pulsar binary, of which we know a few. So from white dwarfs to red dwarfs, with the discovery of three small planets around the early M dwarf star GJ357, using a combination of HARPS, HiRes, and UVES data, so a, a spectrographic trifecta of, of sorts of all the best spectrographs out there. Um, so GJ357, B, C, and D have minimum masses of 3.3, 2, and 6.7 Earth masses, uh, and periods of 9, 4, and 55 days, respectively. Uh, Tess also spotted a transit of GJ357C, but no transit signals for B or D were found. Uh, analysis of that light curve uh, of the star from Tess, uh, when combined with the radial velocities, reveals GJ357C to likely be a, a quite dense iron-dominated world. Um, so there were also claims of the nearest Jupiter analogue that was detected this month from comparisons of the nearby star Epsilon Indy A uh, using data from, uh, from Gaia and that of its predecessor survey, Hipparchos. Uh, the authors suggest that Epsilon Indy AB has a pretty well-constrained mass of three Jupiters uh, and is on a 45-year period. Uh, and of course, if this if the system sounds familiar, it's because apparently there's also a well-studied brown dwarf binary in orbit around Epsilon Indy A. So sticking with that Jupiter theme, uh, there's discovery of two hot Jupiters around two separate F-dwarf stars using data from TESS. Uh, TOI-150b and TOI-163b were found in data from TESS Sector 1 and followed up with ground-based photometry, spectroscopy, and speckle imaging. Uh, TO-1150b is about 1.2 times Jupiter's radius uh, and is interestingly on an eccentric 5.8-day uh, orbit. While the more inflated TOI-163b has a radius 1.5 times that of Jupiter and a mass 1.2 times as great on a 4.2-day orbit. Okay, so interestingly, this, uh, the, the interior planet is on an eccentric orbit, which is, I guess, kind of unusual for our Jupiters, um, and that both planets are, are good candidates for follow-up, uh, being located close to the James Webb uh, continuous viewing zone. So I'm sure we'll hear more about these, these planets and hopefully get some characterization of their atmospheres in the coming years. So onto characterization news now, uh, with uh, leading off with Sophie Dubber and her colleagues who used Harps North uh, and Kepler light curve data to estimate the radius and mass of PH2b, as well as two planets in the Kepler 103 system. Uh, PH2b is revealed to have a radius about 9.5 times that of the Earth and is Saturn-like in density. 
whereas Kepler 103b sports uh, a radius of 3.5 Earths uh, and its sibling 103c is 5.5 times Earth's radii. So these results seem to suggest that uh, 103b has maybe a Neptune-like density, while 103c is one of the highest density planets with a period uh, greater than 100 days discovered to date. So this is interesting in that, you know, we now have some maybe high precision estimates for the masses of these long period intermediate mass planets, which will help our understanding uh, in, in the mass radius relation of this relatively unpopulated region of parameter space. We don't have that many uh, of these like Saturn-like planets. So I thought that was a really cool finding. Um, also, everyone's favorite seven planet system is back in the news, of course, with uh, a reanalysis of some of the fundamental parameters of the, uh, the now famous host star TRAPPIST-1. Uh, Gonzalez et al. writing in AppJ this month present a distance calibrated spectral energy distribution of TRAPPIST-1 using a new medium resolution near-infrared folded port infrared shell echelet spectrum. Uh, as well as its Gaia, Gaia parallax. Wow, that was a, a mouthful. Um, but this is great because it allowed them to provide updated luminosities, uh, mass and radius, and temperatures for this very popular ultra-cool dwarf. So if, like me, you use Spectra of TRAPPIST-1 in your work, it's time to update your models with this, this shiny new spectrum. So get in touch with the authors and see what they can, see if they can give you their, their data. Um, now, uh, interestingly, there's uh, quite an unusual paper in that it's a rarely seen single author work that's made quite a splash this, this month. Uh, Marcus McGrower uh, of the Friedrich Schiller University in Jena, Germany, uh, went, uh, went solo and took a deep dive into the latest ESA Gaia data release to tease out nearly 200 previously unknown companion stars to existing planet hosts. Uh, these included 76 binaries, 27 triples, and one hierarchical quadruple system, similar to um, the the theory that Hugh was uh, was suggesting. They exist for the um, for HD one three nine one three nine in the previous section. They're out there. Uh, they do exist, um, but I can't imagine how how complex that would be to tease out, you know, the transit signal on those in a quadruple system. Either way, I thought that was really cool, and he used used that data to determine, uh, or at least estimate, the multiplicity rate of exoplanet host stars at around about 15%. Uh, also, interestingly, uh, he found eight white dwarf companions, uh, which you know adds yet more weight to the growing body of evidence that seems to suggest exoplanets can indeed survive in post-main sequence systems. Uh, over to the modeling theory side of things, um, there's some more modeling work on the, on the pesky snowball transitions for tidally locked planets, uh, as reported this month by Jade Chaclair and others in AppJ Letters. Uh, they found that tidally locked habitable zone planets can't seem to stay in a, in a snowball state for a geologically significant time, uh, and will eventually stabilize into the now archetypal kind of eyeball state with a small unglaciated substellar region. Um, you know, and that, that region will obviously be affected by other, other parameters of the planet, like, you know, CO2, outgassing, etc. But this is kind of interesting in that um, it's both good for life, I guess, not to have an entirely glaciated planet, but there is some evidence that, um, uh, you know, increased biological complexity follows extreme events like snowball states, at least here on Earth. So maybe we need these. Uh, we need these perturbations for, uh, for uh, e uh, evolution. Who knows? Now, um, there is some other news in that there's exciting, um, the exciting launch of Chaos uh, coming up next week. Now, of course, we have an expert uh, on the, in the Exocast team, so I'm going to throw it over to Hugh uh, for a little update on the launch. Yeah, so um, Tuesday next week, um, it'll be launching about 9 a.m. in the morning Swiss time. I know there's a big event planned here in Bern because Bern is the, uh, the head institution for Chaos. Um, and yeah, so it's going to be launching on the top of a Italian spy satellite, which we don't know much about. All we know that it was is that it was delayed, and um, so Chaos was was delivered on time, um, but 
it was delayed thanks to the primary mission, which is you know the more expensive one. So this this is why it wasn't launched in November as originally planned. Um, but yeah, so so in next week it will it will be launched and um, it won't start observing until February because there'll be a few months of uh, you know just getting getting the so actually one of the thing that worries me is that it has a physical lens cap which has to maneuver out of position in order to let light in so um, they have to do that and they have mm. to you know, moving parts calibrate the instruments <laughs> and yeah moving parts that software controls and um i'm slightly worried a bit more that more more worried about that than i am the launch but um but yeah it should be it's launching from Kourou on a Soyuz rocket and i'm sh- hopefully it's uh you know there's a live stream if you want to watch it um but i'm i'm there's a lot of people here in bern very excited and probably very nervous as well so um, i'm looking forward to that great now let's get on to the really big news of the month uh which is of course the exo cup the original and best twitter poll based exoplanet knockout competition was back for its third uh, year and what a year it was so we ran it uh this year between november 3rd and november 26th uh, of course we had 32 planets selected um but there could only have been one winner so if you're interested in learning about um, how we seeded it and how we selected the planets, uh, please check out our previous two shows in which we went into quite a bit of detail about that. But overall, uh, the summary being directly imaged planets did very well this year. In fact, a, a directly imaged trifecta uh, in the semis took first, second and third place in the competition this year. So really directly imaged planets stepped up in a big way. Um, so I guess it, it makes sense to announce the winner. It's not a secret anymore. It's been out on Twitter for quite a while, but a winner this year is HR8799B. So congrats to, to that planet. It's, uh, it's everyone's favorite planet for the year. Um, I think we can all agree. Uh, and commiserations, of course, to our runner-up PDS70B, which put up a great fight, uh, and Beta Pick B, which came in third place, all directly imaged planets. So just, just, just great work from the directly imaged uh, cohort of astronomers this year, I think, on Twitter. Um, we also, I think, had some some pretty great engagement, um, not just in the in the number of votes that we got for each of our polls, but we also had, you know, this is a Twitter-based competition, and the whole point of that is to try and get uh, scientists and members of the public engaged in exoplanet science. So, so I think uh, a massive uh, shout out, uh, firstly, to Adam Taylor and his class who were using the TaySci hashtag along with the ExoCup 2019 hashtag to to share videos and tweets uh, and their their research that they particularly did uh, on on the planets in the ExoCup and there were some great videos out there featuring featuring their um, you know snakes and you know, various <laughs> elements of their their school and they got really really creative with it so um, I think they deserved a special mention um, and Adam himself who um, who compiled a massive list of all uh, of all the tweets which we'll share on the website um, as well we also had for the first year some. Uh, some French cards. Uh, all of our Exo Cup uh, 2019 cards uh, were translated into French uh, by uh, Baptiste Journeau from the University of Washington. So thanks to Baptiste for doing that. Um, and, uh, you know, there was lots of various poems and memes and even a few controversies, which I'll, I'll get into <laughs> in a second. Wouldn't be Exo Cup without some controversy. Right, exactly. Oh, yeah. should, should, we, should we leave with the controversy? I think we probably should, right? Um, so, I mean, our, our group stages progressed fairly well. We started off, you know, obviously with uh, with Group A. Um, we got, you know, uh, a lot of engagements, uh, our pl- two planets moving through from each group of our, of our eight groups. Um, uh, and, you know, the first controversy was maybe that our 2018 winner, Kelt 9B, uh, was kicked out in the very first round uh, it was, in Group yeah. C. 
So that was already uh, an indication that things were, were probably going to be quite interesting. Um, PDF7TB, which was the runner-up in 2018 and this year, uh, along with JG436B uh, advanced from that round and, and kicked Kelt9B straight out. No I think chance. that it was so early in the competition, we didn't, they they weren't there. They just weren't, they weren't, they weren't ready for it. We've got to get everybody what? ready for it. We've got to drum up more anticipation prior to the cup, I think, next year and get people ready to be fighting from the beginning. That's true. I mean, we, we had some pretty cool posters and, and some gifts that we dispatched early to try and get people excited. But you've got to hit the ground running with Exo Cup. We like oh, that. Yeah. Um, and if you're not on the ball, your planet will be kicked out. This is actually what happened to Kelt 9B, <laughs> so commiserations. Um, then, in the very next vote, of course, um, uh, there was a, another controversy. Our 2017 winner really behaving quite badly. You know, our previous champions just thinking they can cruise on through the stages here. Uh, and in fact, our 2017 winner, uh, winner Kepler 10B, was disqualified. Uh, after we spotted some evidence of uh, of bot activity. Actually, it was Erin, uh, our, our nice special guest, who spotted that evidence straight away. I got an alert, desperate alert, going, what the hell has happened? Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and then Kepler 10B had achieved to get 300 plus votes in two minutes, uh, which was just not realistic in any way, because it, was, it wasn't, it was losing that cup. Yeah, it was. It was in third place, and then there's suddenly this... Um, injection of, of votes out of nowhere and given the time zones I was just waking up as this was all happening and I woke <laughs> up to some frantic messages from Hannah asking what we could do how we could get around this who, who'd got in to violate our polls um, you know we took this seriously and you know deciding what to do with that was was quite tricky right you know uh, you know we didn't want to dispel the 100 odd votes that it had already got but what else could we have done it seemed like that was the only planet that was affected by by this voting so someone was just so um, so keen to see Kepler-10b go through to the next round that they maybe uh, got a little nefarious in their methods. Otherwise, the, the rest of the group group stages advanced uh, with a, a couple more close ties. There was a, a couple of runner-up polls. As Hannah said, I, I thought there was more runner-up polls. When I was looking through the, the research, it felt like they were all really close. I, I know. Yeah. We only had three runner-up polls. So these were polls that we posted if, if a group ended in a tie, so exactly 50-50 votes, then we ran a second poll with those two planets facing off against each other for just a single out uh, to get one through. Uh, and as Hugh pointed out multiple times, he was worried that this was being affected by time zones. But uh, there's nothing we could do. It was uh, it was the only way to get around that uh, yeah. swiftly. But I, I felt like there were tons of them. I felt like it was constantly happening. I was stressing out every time, just like, oh my God, I need to make the table. I've got to do this tweet. I've got to do that tweet. Think- I've got to do this tweet. It happened to be every single time that you were running a poll, Hannah, that it was a, a runoff. I'm pretty sure it was every time. It's just very <laughs> stressful and I don't appreciate it. Uh, next no. next year, uh, we're getting in some help. <laughs> it's, a, it's a lot of fun, though. I enjoyed that hour of like very, very concentrated Twitter activity to try <laughs> and inspire votes behind. Uh, I can't even remember now. I'm trying to remember who I was trying to get out. I think it was 51 pegged. Did that go to a... To a, a tie? Proxima? Uh, no. Um, no, wait. I think 51 Peg made it through okay. But interestingly, our, our, our planet that ended up being the winner, HR8799B, was involved in two of those runner-up polls and oh, scraped yeah. through in both of them. Oh, yeah, it was. It was, you know, so the wow. first one in group G uh, was when 51 REB and HR8779B advanced, but it was a runner-up poll between HR8779 
8799B and Wasp 12B, which ended up actually being really close. So it scraped through there. And then in the round of 16, uh, in the in the fifth tie, it won over Proxima B. And again, in yeah. something that we had to run another poll to, to make yeah. sure that we, we could we could sort oh, that out. Man. So really, it snuck through in both of those and then ended up being quite a resounding winner. So, um, yeah, very interesting um interesting journey for our eventual eventual champion um so in terms of the total number of votes we actually ended up getting roughly six thousand votes across all of the uh across all of our polls which i think sounds pretty great um that's a lot of engagement that's a lot of people you know hopefully thinking about planets looking at the the exo cup cards which were great this year if i don't say so myself they looked fantastic um and you know hopefully learning some things about planets too yeah definitely uh we got such great engagement on the hashtag this year as well uh, using the hashtag ExoCup2019, you can still see some tweets coming in every now and again. Yeah, I haven't removed the column yet. It's still in my uh, my tweet deck. It's still there. I can't can't quite bring myself <laughs> can't quite to take it, it off. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now I was super happy with how it was going this year. I, every time we posted a poll, it'd be like I'd be watching it constantly, and like two hours in, I'd be like, "Oh my god, we've only got seventy votes. What's going to happen? This is just terrible." I <laughs> just like fr- I was just worrying the whole time, <laughs> but it, it ended <laughs> out quite well. <laughs> Exactly. People always uh, always follow through for us in the end. People love exoplanets and we just have to um, give them a little time to, to come to that conclusion. Yeah. <laughs> and actually, maybe that's why the polls seem so close in that they were close usually up to like the last couple of hours, right? So if you're watching it constantly, they do seem like they are neck and neck. And there was only a few cases where it was a very obvious, um, you know, obvious win from the, from the get-go. Erin, I know you were watching it constantly as well tell us a little oh, bit yes. about how you uh dealt with the exo cup this year you you went full full pelt on this one yeah so i knew it existed last year but i never really i didn't really understand twitter until a few months ago uh i sound really old saying that i'm, just, just, I'm not <laughs> sure i understand it yet don't worry <laughs> uh so so this was the first year that it was running that i actually understood how to use twitter um and I just think it's fun. You know, I have vendettas against planets, as we've already talked about. So <laughs> uh, it it was fun to each round, you know, decide why I liked a certain planet. Uh, I only told people why not to vote for a planet, I think, in two polls. So for the most part, I was positive. <laughs> uh, and I mean, you even brought in a, a special guest to yes, uh, to try and convince uh, some people as well. Yeah. So in that round, a I really couldn't... Special guest. I couldn't really decide which planet to pick in that round, so I decided to let uh, my cat pick in that round, and that was an adventure. Uh, She loves treats, but when I tried to get her to to pick a planet by eating treats, she would not eat them. (laughs) But she ended up picking HR8799B in the first round, and she's just clearly all-knowing. Oh, there we go. Uh, Kudos to Lil B. Lil B the cat. (laughs) Yeah, Lil, Lil B the cat. Next year, we'll uh, look and see what she picks in the first round and watch that planet cruise to victory again. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, that will be interesting. Yeah, Erin was there in the in the office um, when we were at Space Telescope for one of the polls where it ended in 50-50. It was just jumping and freaking out and just going, oh, my God, this is just ruining everything. We've got meetings to go to. <laughs> it's just I think it, it, was, it was the Trappist, one of the Trappist ones. It was one of the Trappist ones, yeah. Yeah, Trappist One B uh, being a representative, I guess, for the Trappist system, ending up fourth. The uh, you know the most well-performing photometric planet. It was. Uh, it did. It did well. It had a lot of the small planets we know from previous years have huge amounts of support, huge amounts of support, and and you know there's a good reason for that. Um, but those those directly imaged planets, they just 
They've got the images. They've got the gifs. Yeah. And honestly, a um, gif of Beta Pick came out after the cup. And I swear, I think that would have pushed. I think that would have changed things. Yeah, from third to first, maybe. <laughs> yeah, it was a fantastic image. I think we did end up retweeting as we well. We did, to, yeah. Uh, yeah. You got four times the planets in uh, HR 8799, so it's it's hard to beat that. It is know. hard to beat that, but we're not voting for the system. We we got quite a lot of uh, uh, feedback from this year's cup, as with every cup. Uh, a couple of things that we will probably change for next year. We will make it, it so that there's never two polls on one day. Uh, that was exhausting. Make sure that things don't happen over the weekends. It seems that people use Twitter whilst they're at work. Uh, more than anything else <laughs> shocking don't know, don't know uh, who does that oh yeah no idea absolutely no idea uh, <laughs> so we can redesign it a little bit for that which means it will probably start a little bit earlier because we want to make sure it ends before thanksgiving weekend as well so uh, the cup's probably going to be a bit longer next year but i think hugh's uh selection criteria and the randomization worked really really well and i think that that's shown by the number of very close tiebreakers we had yeah yeah good work and i mean a lot of the success i think came down to folks like aaron you know who weren't necessarily us and in, you know actually running the poll but who were really engaged and you know taking over from from the uh from the tweeting for us for a little while and just you know making sure that everyone was as well informed as they could be and you know that was key to the crucial of the, oh 100 uh, percent. this is not about us in any way this is about getting other people to retweet and share and engage and <laughs> the more people that they've got following them that can see that the better so yeah i certainly think that next year we're gonna be uh, appointing some official exo cup tweeters as well to help us out and relieve the stress a little bit on the three of us but uh overall we got uh, over three hundred thousand impressions on twitter according to our twitter analytics uh we got mm. 1.5 likes on the tweets throughout the exo cup and 420 new followers uh for exo cup twitter so i think we did uh really really well the final result alone made seventeen thousand impressions so uh i think that it's been it's been really brilliant definitely yeah just a shame a transiting planet didn't get to the final but <laughs> I know and we were really pushing on some of the atmospheric detections that have been made and none of that no one cares how do we make people care Erin how do we make people care I still think happy 11b needs justice it was in that uh, Kepler 10 fiasco but uh, oh right okay the helium detection in that atmosphere is pretty cool and I'm I'm all for transiting planets also but I just did not want Trappist 1 to be our representative of the transiting planets in the final <laughs> Oh, come on. There's Give us one with these. an atmosphere. And I know I just said earlier that I really like small planets, but small planets <laughs> with atmospheres. There's a exactly it's, it's a yeah. select group. Uh and to be honest, we've just gotta be able to find them first. That's a really difficult thing to do. And you know, I I was super proud of uh Wasp twelve B competing really well of HR eight seven nine nine on that runner up poll. Uh putting some of that that cloud stuff through. Got some fighting tweets between many people on that one uh i i think we need a, a shout out to bruce mcintosh on this as well who was also stressing out about the exo cup a lot this year for us uh and some yeah. excellent threads uh that came out of of him for a number of our planets yeah no that's true i i, I should have mentioned bruce earlier his his threads were incredibly informative so thanks thanks to bruce one thing we didn't mention was going into the cup uh 51 peg b was considered to be you know pretty much a, a favorite 
considering that it's, you know, kind of associated with the ASEA's Nobel Prize award. But, you know, it was knocked out uh, fairly early in the in the quarterfinals by PDS 70P, which shows that, you know, just being, just winning a Nobel Prize isn't enough to do well in the, in the Exo <laughs> Cup, right? You also have to be able to take pretty pictures. Exactly. Apparently. Yeah, exactly. That's why the direct image folks will always, uh, I guess, have that that extra um, you know, kind of emotive element to their work, and that you can get these incredible gifts. Um, you can actually see these these planets uh, in in reflected light. It's just it's it's incredible. How do we compete? I think it's also helped by the fact that there's so few of them that the community that studies them can rally behind a single thing, whereas the Transiting yeah. community, there's thousands. There's literally thousands of them. And everybody's got their own little niche in that, What, in terms of the work that they do and how they're going to promote things. And it's really interesting for me to see the general public's reaction to those. And the general public's reaction is the smaller and closer to us, the better. So I think that's a really interesting thing that isn't kind of, that's shining through the exocup, but isn't shining through in the exoplanet literature because... Those aren't the kinds of planets that we can actually study and look at, which is interesting. So there's this really in, like strange balance between a lot of our followers uh, who we love, who are part of the exoplanet community and are listening to this to uh, not have to read archive every month. Uh, and then a lot of our followers who are listening to this because they're genuinely really interested in learning about these worlds that we're discovering. And I think that uh, the exocups... Uh, just a fantastically fun way to get those people engaged and uh, I want to say thank you to all of the the people that did and if you're listening and don't have Twitter next year uh, by October just get Twitter just use it for the Exa Cup and then you can leave again Uh, but uh, it's good fun so I guess with that, we can draw a line under this year's Exo Cup and, and, and look forward to uh, Exo Cup 2020, which I'm sure will be full of upsets and controversies and, <laughs> and hopefully great and great engagement as New well. New planets. New planets. If you want yeah. your planet to get into the top 24, you need to write papers on it with the name in right. it. Hopefully the direct imaging ones won't all get in in world cards this time. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Another maybe, winning. Maybe we'll be careful about the world cards again next time. Yeah, of course, our, our our returning champions will, will, will be back. Yeah, and hopefully, hopefully, without controversy this time. We shall see. It's not fun without without controversy. Uh, I think that uh, nicely ends it for the news there, and it's actually time for Erin to decide what planet she wants to adopt into the family. So, uh, I wonder what planet have you selected to join Exocast Adopted Planets? Yeah, so I spent a lot of time thinking about this because I don't have favorites very often. Uh, And so I looked through at all the planets I'd studied, but some of them had already been in there and the other ones weren't as exciting. So I decided (laughs) to go with uh, HD 21749C, which was the first test planet that's definitely a terrestrial planet. Oh, okay. Nice. And when was that one discovered? 2018. So it's the 10th test planet confirmed test planet uh it has a radius of 0.9 earth radii so there's no ambiguity there it is not (laughs) uh not a mini neptune do we have a mass for that one i don't think so ah got some more things to learn yeah we need some follow-ups there's a lot we can still learn about it we have an upper limit of 3.7 earth masses wow on a 0.9 radius wow 
It's dense. Yeah, yes, dense. it is. But that's an upper limit. Sure. What kind of star is it around? Uh, I believe it's a K star. Okay, so potentially had some evaporating atmospheres around that, unless it's on a wide orbit. It's uh, 700 Kelvin, so... Okay. What's that in our definition, Hannah? Cool? <laughs> By our standards, Hannah? Eh, that's an Hot. average average medium kind of temperature Temperate. planet. That's one flame on our scale. Yes, exactly. Just that's the a, one flame. Just the one flame. A single flame. I'm glad you picked 21749 because it's quite interesting that there was a... So it was the first planet, the B planet in the system, was found in a single transit. And so the smaller planet, which had already had four or five transits in tests, wasn't actually found automatically until they'd already identified the single transit and then went back to look at the rest of the data and were like, oh, look, there's a signal here. And then this uh, small planet popped out. So um, I think that's quite cool. It's one way that single transits can actually help us find other planets. I think it's really exciting for the future of the field too. It's really showing kind of what TESS is capable of and how many new terrestrial planets we're going to find. And hopefully we have some of them that are great targets for uh, observational follow-up. Yeah. Sounds awesome. Well, welcome to the family. And uh, we will add that in. You can see all of our adopted planets on our website. Uh, thank you, Erin, for picking that. Thank you for welcoming it into your family. <laughs> it's a Great weird choice. and wacky family, but we like it. So thank you so much for joining us for another installment of Exocast. We will return next month, of course, with more exciting exoplanetary news and views when I will be joined by a new special guest. Until then, you can check out all of our previous shows on our website, exocast.org, on Spotify or iTunes or any other reputable podcast retailer. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter, of course, and please do if you are not already, at uh, exo underscore cast and like us on Facebook. So until next time, bye-bye. Bye. 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 Exocast. I have exoplanets.